Hi everyone, it's Jamie. I just want to share with you that my new book, Toxic Relationship Recovery, is available now. This book is for anyone who is healing after a harmful relationship, but it's also for people that are looking to identify toxic traits, toxic behaviors, and toxic strategies that get used upon people every single day. The second half of the book teaches you strategies to heal your inner voice and find your authentic self after experiencing this type of harm. I'm looking forward to you all reading it and hearing your feedback from it. It's available today. Find Toxic Relationship Recovery wherever you buy books. This is Unlearned, a self-rising production. I'm Jamie. And I'm CA. And we are your hosts. This is a podcast all about deconstructing who we are, and exploring who we are becoming. Hey, babe, you have to listen to this new song. That band just came, they just came out with their new single. I'm going to put it on high so you can hear it. Oh my God, I'm just so excited. Can you, can wait, you, wait, wait, you ready? wait, hang, okay. wait, no, 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 hang on a second, hang on a second. I, I like, I, I want to hear it because like it's important to you, but I, I'm like extremely sensory overloaded right now. So I'm going to actually probably like, I was literally just about to leave the room. Actually, I was going to go upstairs and like take a bath and get a little like downtime because I'm so sensory overloaded right now. Can we listen to it later? Well, I mean, I just wanted to hang out with you. So like, can we just, can you just like hang out? Just like, I mean, I get your sensory overloaded, but can we just like hang out for a little bit? No, like I'm not going to be able to enjoy it. It won't be like, I, I, it's no, I can't. I really actually can't. I'm going to have to listen to it later. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not going to like turn it off though. Like, is that what you're asking me to do or like? No, you can listen to it. It's fine. Like you can listen to it and I do want to hear it. I just can't right now. I'm sorry. I really just can't right now. I just like, uh, this is, this is it CA though. Like sometimes you're just so sensitive. Like I want to be able to hang out with you and I want to enjoy music with you. And then this stuff comes up and it's like, just don't know why you're so sensitive to this stuff. I, this is just the reality of how my body experiences like sensory input. I, we've had this conversation before and like, I, I want to respect that this is really important to you. I love sharing music with you. And I also can't right now. Like it will, it, my ears are overloaded. My, my nervous system is overloaded. I need you to respect that that's what's going on for me right now. And I like, you can listen to it. I'm not asking you to stop. I'm just telling you that I will be removing myself so that I can get the break that I need. <sighs> okay. I'll see you later. And scene. <laughs> scene. Just. So take us away, CA. What do we okay. got here? Here we're launching into an episode about those of us in relationship that have been called too needy, too sensitive, overly dramatic, all of those types of um, accusations. And I kind of want to get into this topic. I want to get into the nuance of it. I want to debunk it and also validate a variety of different valid perspectives that are going on in these types of dynamics. So we started off with a sensory experience. 
mainly because this is my lived reality and I have quite a lot of practice with it, actually. Um, I am neurospicy AF and have spent almost my entire life being accused by almost everybody I know for being too sensitive. I am sensitive to a lot of different things. I'm sensitive to certain textures and uh, sounds and smells. And uh, when I was a kid, I was really sensitive to certain like spices. Now I love super spicy food. But when I was really little, like I couldn't even eat mustard until I was like 10 because it was too spicy for me. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, Um, which is funny because now I eat like level four spicy Thai food. But it took time for me to work up to that level. Anyway, the point is, is there such a thing as being too sensitive or too needy? Is that a thing that we could even accuse somebody of being or label somebody of being? And I think my initial response here, I'm just going to like go ahead and straight up kind of like debunk that and say, I don't think it's accurate to just come out and straight up say something like this person is too sensitive or too needy. Is it valid that two different people can experience the same sensory event and interpret it in wildly different ways? Absolutely. And that doesn't make one person's analysis of that event more valid than the other. Because what if we flipped the narrative and I was like, why are you so numb? What is wrong with you? Like, I, I can't believe that you can like be around this much sensory input and not need a break. Like you might need to get checked out. Like something isn't right. The fact that you can sit there with that level of like noise going on is like, there's like, you're not sen- like, there's gotta be something going on. Like, why aren't you picking up on this? Right? Like I could seriously flip the narrative and make the other version be the thing that is quote unquote, like wrong or something not right going on there. But that wouldn't be accurate either. Because quite clearly, this person is experiencing it in a certain way where it's completely valid for them to be able to experience and intake like an immense amount of sensory input. And it not only not bother them, but for some people, they like love that. And they they relish in like being like completely like immersed in like tons of different sensory experiences going on at the same time. So, and within that spectrum, right, there's every other variation, right? We have people that are extremely sensory avoidant, people that are extremely sensory seeking and everything in between. And so in this situation, what we sort of modeled was one person, which was me in that scenario, and it's also me in my real life a lot of the times because... I'm mostly sensory avoidant, even though there are some things that I do like to seek a certain like level of sensory experience. But anyway, I digress. So in this situation, that person was was acknowledging that they were having a sensory need, which in that moment, the need was to like decompress their nervous system, get away from all the sights and sounds and sort of recalibrate and reset themselves. They were at a heightened level and they needed to bring their sensory system, their nervous system down. And the other person was, maybe they were new to this relational dynamic. It sounded like they said, oh, we've had this conversation before, but this other person was having a hard time 
understanding that that experience was valid because it differed from their own. So for them, they hadn't reached that sensory threshold and maybe they almost never reach sensory thresholds. Maybe they are a person that's more just kind of like average or sensory seeking. And so like listening to loud music all the time and like talking while music is on in the background or like all of those sorts of things is like totally manageable for them. And so being presented with another reality of the same experience, they sit there and they go, you're too sensitive. Why are you being so sensitive? It's obviously fine, right? Because in their mind, well, it's fine for me. So it should be fine for you. So it kind of has to do with like applying your reality to somebody else. That's where this phrase of like too sensitive comes from in the first place. It's literally just because I'm making my experience the norm and interpreting everybody else's experience through that lens. And so whatever way you deviate from my level is I'm going to give a label to it. So if you're more sensitive than me, I'm going to call you too sensitive. Or the way I tried to flip the narrative earlier, what if I was doing the same thing and my norm or my reality was the norm and I'm sitting, I'm sitting here watching you blast music and I go, there's something wrong with you if you can listen to music that loud, right? I'm making that my norm and you've deviated out of my norm. And so now I'm going to put a label on it. So at the end of the day, the debunking comes from the fact of being able to accept the validity of multiple interpretations of the same event or the same experience. So I want to kind of start off for a second because this is um, this is a very interesting starting point where we can kind of consider the socializational or the socializational. That's not a word. <laughs> this this whatever. We'll have a list of made up words that we came up with this podcast. Uh, the social the socialization and the cultural factors of where some of this behavior that CA just talked about became normalized. So for example, I wanted to touch for a second before we really go into like the nitty gritty about the idea that like millennials are snowflakes. Okay. But you have to remember, you have to remember that the people that raised the millennials were what we dub like the boomer generation. Um, some people were raised by like the silent generation. Is it the silent generation? No, the greatest generation. I can't remember. Uh, whatever's before boomers. Uh, so we have the people that were raised by, you know, people that were at the turn of the century, like 1900s, then they were having children, then it was like the 1920s, 1930s, and they had children, 1950s, right? And so a lot of the millennials have parents that were born in the 19, what, 50s, maybe late 1940s, mid 50s, or mid 60s, whatever, right? Depending on where they are. And who were their parents? Their parents were people that were born around what 1920s to 19 mid 30s maybe whatever that math is okay and this is why i'm giving this breakdown for a second our parents if you are listening to this and you're a millennial your parents are most likely a boomer and their childhood when they were children what was being developmentally normed for them 
was based on parents that were born in the 20s. Think about that for a second. Okay, that's why I broke this down. Because now we're really talking about culturally what was occurring in the emotional space and what was being normed and what was being discouraged and what was considered, you know, the whole sit pretty kids are supposed to be, you know, seen and not heard, like do not disrupt. You can be around, but grandma's couches are plastic. So go to grandma's house, but stare at the wall. Right. Like, I mean, these are all very real. Like many of the millennials that I've talked to are like, what did you do at grandma's house? They're like, we couldn't touch anything. Like we couldn't move. We couldn't speak. Like, I mean, yes, I know that there were probably some amazing grandmas that, you know, people had, but like many people were like, it was a normal event to like not act as a child around their grandparents. Right. And so I'm giving you guys this context because if we can think about where some of the, you know, what are the, what's the feet that we're standing on right now when we get told you are too needy, you are too sensitive, you are too much. Remember that we are the product of so many generations that came before us that did not have the luxury of embodiment, self-attunement, introspection, which is just self-reflection. They weren't allowed to advocate for themselves. So anyone in your family that might have been neurodivergent, or even if they're not neurodivergent, but they have other sensory things going on, or they're just considered extroverted and they were raised by a bunch of people who are introverted or vice versa, right? This is where I want you guys to understand that like some of this work that we're about to go into is sheer self-advocacy. And when we talk about self-advocacy, Why that's considered a luxury to so many people is that the generations that came before us, literally that was beaten out of them. It was actually either physically beaten out of them or it was emotionally beaten out of them or emotionally neglected out of them. Just think about that for a second. So they might have been very upset at a specific sweater that they were wearing. Right. And their daughter would be, you know, the, the this is like I'm per- picturing, let's say it's my mom. Right. And she's eight years old in the 50s or early 60s. OK. She's crying because the sensory experience of that sweater is so overwhelming for her and her mom beats her. I don't think my grandma ever did this. This is just an example. But her mom beats her when she has the meltdown about the sweater. And her reverberating theme that comes out of that is, I'm too much, I am too demanding, and I need to shut up and stay quiet. And so then she has a child, which is me, but she doesn't beat me. She just belittles me emotionally. So she doesn't physically touch me at all. She just says, oh my God. You are just the most prima donna in the world. What do you need me to go to like Egypt to get the cotton that you need because you can't have the right sweater? Get over it, right? And then now I'm an adult and I'm realizing that I may have been dealing with a lot of sensory issues and now I'm with a partner 
And this is why we gave you that example. Now I'm with a partner that I'm starting to realize that I get emotion or not emotional. I get sensory thresholds that don't always match up with my other people's environment. So it doesn't match up with my best friend's environment. It doesn't match up with my partner's environment or their needs or whatever. And so like CA said, it's the same precipitant. It is music. And I am experiencing it one way and my partner is experiencing it in a completely different way. This is why I can't wear the sweater, but my partner, it's their favorite sweater because they love the style. They do not have a sensory demand overload that goes on during that like texture and they love it. So they wear it all the time. And then they look at me and they go, I bought you that same sweater. Why don't you ever wear it? And I go, it literally makes my skin crawl. Oh my God, there you go again. Why are you so sensitive? And now we're going back to full circle. If we can actually anchor down to self-advocacy, we can have a stabilized, grounded self to actually anchor down and say, I'm allowed to not want to wear that sweater. I'm allowed to advocate for myself. I am not saying you can't wear that sweater. I am not saying that you can't enjoy that sweater. I'm saying I'm not able to do that at this moment, at this time. And I am rightfully allowed to say that. And so then what do we go back to? This is why I'm kind of bringing it full circle. When we get narratives from generations that say, blah, blah, they're all snowflakes. Oh gosh, the woke generation that feels their feelings. Oh, how dare we have someone that has an emotional response to someone making a, you know, off kilter joke or whatever. It's like, now what I'm going to go back to CA. What if I flip that narrative? Why is it normal for you to mock, openly mock someone? So you're saying I'm too sensitive, but you're also normalizing that it's okay to openly mock someone in public. So you're mad when I self-advocate, but you're, you are normalizing something that is actually very disturbing. Is something wrong with you? Do you need to be checked out that you think it's socially acceptable to openly mock someone? Do you need help? So this is what, this is why, this is why we wanted to go into this because of course there's nuance here. And we want you guys all to understand that when you are self-processing some of this work, it goes back to the stages of healing. If you haven't listened to that episode, that's a very pivotal episode for our podcast. Stages of healing outlines a lot of this stuff because we're talking about getting to the moment of conviction. And this is what CA was just talking to. Getting to the moment of conviction means that I believe that it is okay to not wear that sweater. Not only believe, but then I activate into the external and then implement that strategy with my external, which is my partner. That is the conviction. That is actively implementing the belief that I am allowed to advocate for my own needs. Absolutely. And so I think hinging this and understanding this through the lens of self-awareness and self-advocacy is going to be really helpful 
like moving into the next example that I want to go into. I wanted to start with the sensory one because I feel like using like a physical environment example helps people to sort of set the stage for understanding where we're about to go next. So recapping that sensory thing, right? So this, we're talking about a physical environment experience. One person felt what they needed in that moment and advocated for it because they were at that place of conviction of knowing that their experience was valid and knowing that they needed to take care of their nervous system and believing that they deserved that level of self-care for themselves, that they were able and willing to advocate for it and were able to verbalize that. And we hope that in that relationship, eventually that partner comes to understand that perspective as valid as well and can understand and get on board with, oh, okay, like just because I am not sensitive to this music doesn't mean that my partner isn't validly sensitive to it and they they, they do deserve to take care of their nervous system. Okay, so I want to kind of shift into one of the other areas that happens a lot in relationships and not even just like romantic partners, but this happens in uh, parent-child relationships. This happens in friendships even is being called too needy. And this is usually referring to like emotional and relational types of connection, right? With that person, depending on what the dynamic is, but we'll stick with the partnership one. Cause we were using that with the sensory thing. So because this happens a lot in partnerships, right? Like, and we, we, we don't have time to rabbit hole through the whole like attachment <laughs> theory <No. laughs> uh, background, but it's right. somewhat can be sometimes related. Um, but the thing is, some people are showing up to a relationship with a certain level of an understanding of how they want to connect with their partner, whether that's like how deeply, how intimately, how often, lots going into what they might like visualize wanting and needing out of a relationship. And that doesn't always match up with what their partner is visualizing or capable of providing. And so oftentimes when there is that mismatch, the person who is kind of being bid for more attention or more connection or more love is going to come at that person and say, why are you so needy? Why are you smothering me? You are too needy. Like, oh my gosh, right? It's too much. You're too much. And so we want to go ahead and start with the approach that the person who's being labeled as too needy in this situation, obviously they're having a very valid experience as a human person. So is it fair to say that they're too needy? I think we need to just eradicate that sentence altogether. I think there's a much more honest way to actually look at this and verbalize what's really going on. Because again, if it's something is too much of something or not enough of something, because then they could put it back and go, you're not emotional enough. You're not connected enough. There's something wrong with you. You are emotionally numb, right? It's like, if we're going to swing a pendulum, it swings both ways. And both partners could sit there and just get into a gridlock with each other, labeling the other one as too much or not enough. And then they get stuck in that space because... They're missing the honest nuance of what's really like validly actually happening between the two of them. So what we want to 
look at is, okay, obviously these two different people have a different set of norm in their head, right? They have different like thresholds or what they consider to be normal. And so then it's very easy if this is what normal is and my partner is either above or below that threshold, then I'm going to label them too much or not enough. Well, we need to look at where that sense of normal came from in the first place. And this is where that like introspection really comes from. And it's a whole ass wide variety of potential (laughs) um, origins for where your sense of normal in a relationship came from, right? We're talking childhood stuff. We're talking, you know, past relationships that you've had, um, literally your nervous system. There's all sorts of things that go into where you set your threshold of what's quote unquote normal. And if you've never taken the time to really investigate that and get super honest and curious about that, and you're just kind of like on some default setting and having a certain level of expectations that you've never taken the time to get into and understand where those expectations and that level of normal came from, then that's how you often just get in these like gridlock type fights. Because you're insisting, no, this is normal. And this person is insisting, no, that's not my thing is what's normal. What needs to happen is both people need to get introspective, figure out where their thresholds of normal came from. And if within that, there is personal work that needs to be done to help them better understand how to express what their actual needs are and advocate for those needs and strategize on how to get those needs met. This is the nuance. This is the part that I really, really wanted to make sure we leave time to touch on in this episode. So a lot of that, everything I just said takes like a long time to like even get to. And that's not the theme of this episode necessarily. So what I'm saying is like, say you've come through that and you've done that analysis work. And now you are realizing that my level of connection and attention that I'm seeking in this relationship. Some of that is coming from a place of like, I showed up to this relationship in a deficit. And that's the part where I'm saying like, maybe you you can take your time to analyze did this deficit start in childhood, like this emotional neglect throughout your whole entire childhood? Or is it because you were emotionally abused or neglected from previous romantic partners? Whatever it is, you showed up to this dynamic in a deficit. And so are you trying to lean into this partner to fill that deficit? Or have you analyzed that and and there isn't really any like deficit mode? There's literally just, no, I just like literally love being this close to somebody. And it's just the valid way that I love to connect with people. And if that's the case, then you can now verbalize and express and acknowledge that. And and I want to leave space for that being valid. Like there is a valid space for people who literally just like, oh, I just want to smush my face inside your face and crawl into your skin and just like be, oh, I just love that. And that's like literally just like, that's the type of like intimacy and connection that they love and are seeking from a partner. And if they've analyzed that, now they can really verbally express that and advocate for that. And then this partner can decide if they are capable or willing of showing up in that way for that person. On the other hand, 
if that person has analyzed that the reason they're like seeking after so much attention is because they've showed up to this relationship in a deficit, then they need to get really honest about how to strategize getting those needs met in a way that doesn't put more on the partner than is appropriate. So partners do like they should be showing up for each other and like providing love and attention and connection. However, is it the partner's responsibility to fulfill an entire childhood's worth of emotional neglect that this person showed up with? So if I'm thinking about like a bucket, right? Like a an attention or a love bucket and this person's showing up with like literally an empty bucket and expecting their partner to fill up that bucket with all the love they never got from mom or dad or friends or any person like that's too much that's that's more than what a partner should appropriately be providing in a in a intimate romantic partnership right like they should be giving partner love like sure like show up and be you know loyal and be you know attentive but to expect a partner to provide all the love and attention that you've never gotten in your entire life i think is put is asking too much and i use that phrase yeah so it's a recipe for codependency for sure and yeah and and burnout and resentment and all sorts of things but again if you never analyzed that and you just show up to this relationship thinking, oh, I just think that my partner should just literally be there 24-7 for every single emotional need that I ever have, then that's, you know, that's where you get, like, stuck in a place of not really being able to verbalize and advocate properly. Because what's happening is, like, you're labeling something something but deep inside, it's actually coming from this other place. And that is tricky. I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, it's so easy. Just introspect and figure out where your needs are coming from. <laughs> That's what I was like, actually, earlier, I think I said, like, it takes a long time to do this work. And it takes some bravery and inner honesty and patience and all of that. But I think if you're willing to do that work, you're going to be able to be so much more honest with yourself and so much more well-equipped to advocate for what you are really trying to communicate. So I want to I wanna volley it over to you and ask you, I want to get into like, I think I sort of started touching on it, like whose responsibility is it to fulfill certain emotional needs in a relationship? Well, and this is where I think we talked about the silos before. We have two individuals that come to a relationship and they're both individually going to be needing to be fostering, cultivating deep relationships with themselves. And then we have the mutual energetic entity, which is the mutual silo that only exists because those two people are relating to each other. That's the only reason that silo is there in the first place. It only exists when there's a mutual energy coming to the the middle ground so like when you're saying well whose responsibility it's almost like I've given the analogy I don't know if it was in another episode but I've given the analogy of like someone coming to that middle silo and pouring like thousands and thousands of gallons of energy into it and they're pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and it's like 
I'm now responsible to fill all of your needs because that person's like, you need to put in more, 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 more. And they're like, I'm giving it, I'm giving it, I'm getting it. So like in this case, they're not seeing what's happening. They're just like, I need this. And the the partner jumps when that other person says jumps. And because the, the premise is like, yeah, that's your responsibility. You have to give me that much. Right. And so they're pouring and pouring and pouring. And like CA just said, it is a recipe for, uh, it's a recipe for burnout and resentment. And then I added, it's a recipe for codependency because now the responsibility isn't actually a mutual coexisting responsibility. It is someone demanding one thing and the person that is giving is now bypassing all of their very necessary needs that need to be attuned to and need to be fostered and cultivated within themselves. And that that energy is now bypassed only into the mutual silo. And this is where we have a lot of breakdown, right? And so when we ask like, where is the responsibility? Who's, who's responsible in a healthy relationship? It is as it, I don't want to be like, you know, it kind of sounds like diplomatic, but it is a mutual responsibility of two people coming together and being able to dialogue through some of this stuff And if they say, well, this is my need, this is my demand, right? Like CA said, sometimes it's not going to be from this like very traumatized place. Sometimes people are just like very high stimulated and they are like when you were talking, see, I was thinking about how there are people that are like high physical touch, right? So when they come home, they're like, I expect you to give me a hug. You need to like interact with me. You need to touch me. Like you need to like hold my back and squeeze my arm and like make sure you're giving me like deep hugs and all of this stuff. And that's why you get that whole thing from the love languages and all of that stuff from like the pop culture psychology. But what we're saying there is we're not diminishing that person's need for high touch, high pressure, high sensory, you know, mute, like in that, in their mind that exists in a mutual silo, right? We're not diminishing that. What we have to what we have to take into account is that person needs to gain enough awareness that that is a high priority for them. And the other person needs to have a honestly kind of a heart to heart with themselves and say, is there a reason why I like, you know, shrivel up when I think about getting a hug or giving a hug. And mind you, we're not trying to go in a witch up. We're not trying to find trauma that's not there. We're not trying to. Remember, some of this could just be your own personal processing, right? So if I'm in a place where I've always liked hugs, but in the past year, I haven't wanted anyone to be near me. I haven't wanted anyone to touch me. And my partner validly comes to me and says, hey, you know, I would like us to have more like, you know, like just interact with each other and like a physical more. And I don't even just mean sex. I mean, just like I haven't even like put my hand like we haven't held hands in a year. We haven't hugged each other in a year. And is that person saying that in the mutual silo too needy? If that person is coming from a place of lack of attunement or lack of understanding it's very easy to be like, you're too needy. You're too needy. I don't know why you always need a hug, right? And mind you, this is what I was going to give before you prompted the question. This is what I was going to go into. 
this concept of going all or nothing is very, very clearly in this dynamic, which is that partner didn't say they always want hugs. They said that they've been able to understand by having hugs and physical connection, like holding hands or cuddling on the couch for, let's say, a couple years into your relationship. And then all of a sudden it being non-existent, they noticed that that was actually like a pretty important element to connection with you. And by not having it be there for an entire year, they've been able to realize how prioritized that is in their brain. And they're coming to you not saying I always need a hug. What they're communicating is, hey, that's important to the mutual space of our dynamic. To me, to me, that is important to a mutual dynamic in relationships, in my perception, all right? And so now we're going into the other person. Let's say they're going through something, right? But they are in a place where they do not want to be honest. And and not even, maybe they're not conscious, right? They're not consciously in a state of, I don't want to say oppositional because that, that, you know what I mean? But it's like, it's almost like I am in a state of not, being aware of the magnitude of what's going on, right? And so when my partner comes to me and says, hey, I'm not coming to you with criticism here. I'm not coming to you with cruelty or anything. I I know that we've been able to navigate a lot of that physical stuff, like holding hands and cuddling. We've been able to do that really well for the past few years, but I've noticed that this is something that's changed. And then we're going back to like our old, you know, our our past episode last week where we're talking about we can't force people to be authentic, right? And so if someone does not want to be authentic or even tapped in, let's say they're like, they don't even have that awareness like we talked about last week. They're just not tapped in. How easy is it to just project outward and say, you're too needy. So this is where I'm going back to the conviction. It is important for you to hold that value and say, this is not like, I'm not saying this is a deal breaker. I'm not saying we're about to break up. What I'm saying is it is important for me to understand what's going on with you and if you're not aware that I'm not pressuring you to, you know, I'm not pressuring you to like get to that. But I also need you to understand that this is very important to me because I feel I feel very, very distant now. And it's starting to creep into like how I feel bonded with you. And that is something I take seriously. Right. And so what that person's doing is sure, they can come to you with a bid and say something like, I'm not, I'm not saying just go to therapy unwillingly and force yourself to heal. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, I've noticed something's changed. It's now actually starting to infiltrate the mutual silo. And because now we're in the mutual silo, like CA's example, like whose responsibility is it? It's a both and because it's as important for that person to identify the high prioritization of physical touch as it is 
important for the other person to take a step back and realize this is not all or nothing. They don't want hugs every single moment of their life. They're not demanding every single second of your time. And they are bidding you to maybe ask a deeper question. Obviously, you know how we work in this podcast. We want that to be autonomous. So if they bid you and they're going, ideally, I would want, I would, I would, I would invite you to like explore that. I don't know when you're going to do that, but whenever you do, I'm just saying, I would love to understand you a little bit better right now. Right. And so now that person, this is why I'm saying it's a both end because now we're going back to the responsibility. And this is a hardship for people to hear because People are like, so you're blaming me because I'm in a depressive episode? And we're like, wait, hold on, hold the nuance. This is not a a cruel, self-deprecating or other deprecating, like, you know, other person deprecating. This is a very real implication to the shift of what's going on emotionally. And the nuance here is that When someone says, hey, this is important, you are important to me, something's shifting. When we talk about that mutual responsibility, it is inviting yourself to ask the question. Inviting yourself to ask that question and say, could I just fall into just saying they're too needy, they're too much? I don't want, I don't want to be that physical anymore. All right, well then start there. You just said something that helps you. I don't want to be that physical anymore. So start there. Start with the things you know, right? So if you're like, they're too needy, right? Okay, so they, 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 they. But then you say, I, I don't want to be that physical anymore. All right, start there. If you don't want to be, ask the question and get curious about, What's behind that then? Because truly, we are not trying to put doubt in your mind that you are now, maybe you're, maybe you are late diagnosed neurodivergent and you never actually justified that cringiness inside of you that really did want to cry every time someone hugged you and you forced yourself your whole life to get hugged. That's why I want to validate both sides. I can validate both sides. So there could be someone that is like, I can't do that anymore. I can't force myself to hug like that anymore. Like I want to be, I want to be real with you. But when I tell you, when you hug me, I want to crawl out of my skin. All that partner needs to know is that information. Well, and here's the thing is the reason why sometimes this stuckness happens is one partner or both are fearful to go to those deeply honest places because they either consciously or subconsciously don't want to explore the implications of what happens when that honesty comes out. Because in this case, say both of these needs are incredibly valid. Right. And we the whole point is like, all needs are valid. We just need to kind of like figure out where they're coming from and how best to strategize to get them met and untangle it. So like in this scenario, this person is just showing up and like, they're saying, I just really love a certain level of physical touch and physical interaction. And say this person did eventually go to that like super honest place inside of themselves and 
figure out and decide that, as you said, maybe they are late diagnosed neurodivergent and have realized that like that level of physical sensory input for them is something they've always been uncomfortable participating in, but they were just masking for most of their life. And now they're at a place where they they just literally cannot force themselves to mask anymore. And now we have these two truths sitting on the table and it feels like an almost impossible gap to bridge. And one or both of those people took forever to get super honest about that because they were worried that that might mean, I guess that means we might not be the most aligned people for each other because you genuinely cannot physically engage in the ways that I genuinely deeply love to connect with my partner. And what does that mean for us? And so that's difficult. That's a very scary thing. And if if people who are trying to hold on to that security and not even from like a, a, you know, insecure place, but literally just because like, maybe there is a lot about this partner that they do love and they're like unwilling, like they didn't want to have to face this because they don't want to have to let go of this partner because they really do like and love so much about them. And that's where it comes to that honesty. And we talk about how high level of a priority is this? How can we strategize this? Is there a way to find a negotiable middle ground to where both of us feel heard and understood and respected and doing the best we can to like bridge the gap? Or is it a a gap that's impossible to bridge and, and we do have to part ways as much as that hurts? But that right there... That's the rub. That's the reason why people avoid self-honesty so often is because they know that if they were to get self-honest, like uh, explore that honesty and then verbalize and express that honesty, they know that that's going to have implications, real implications to that shared silo and that mutual dynamic. And that can be really scary for a lot of people. Yeah. It's the question of like, if I was honest Well, if you ever get to the point where you're that self-aware and then you come to the conclusion, like whatever conclusion you come to, it's that question of like, well, if I said that out loud, then that self-abandonment or that abandonment wound is just like, I don't want someone to leave me. I don't want someone to reject me. I don't want to be called reclusive because I don't want hugs, right? Like it's the opposite. Like, am I too needy? Am I too, right? It's not even just the, am I too needy? Remember, this is going either way. Like, yep, you're too, like, you're too radically numb or whatever. It's like, okay, well, you know, that person just because they don't like hugs isn't numb. Like we know this, like people who don't love physical touch, they are not, you know, emotionless. They just experience like their expression differently than someone who likes physical touch. Right. So we're not doing a a freaking hierarchy here. We're not doing that. But what's so scary for people is when they come to a very real conclusion, like, let's go back to the hug example. I know that when I get hugged, when I am not masking and I am not telling myself, just breathe through it. I know my skin crawls every time, but I have spent decades saying, get over it, get over it. This is how the world asks asks you to show up, right? 
And then you're opening the door for yourself and you're saying, I'm allowed to self-advocate. I am allowed to be honest with this about myself. I am allowed to ask a stranger, actually, no, thank you. Like, right. You know, I don't really want to engage in a random hug, right? Those moments of self-advocacy slowly creep into the dynamic. And so funny, let's point this out for a second. It's actually funny when I do my work with people, especially when we're talking about showing up authentically, is that that actually tracks with how people start executing their own autonomy and authenticity is that they will be able to do it probably with the grocery store clerk way before they're going to be able to do it with their partner. Right? Right? Happy birthday. Oh, can I give you a hug? Oh, actually, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't need it. No, actually. Um, no, but thank you. But thank you for congrats. You know, like, thank you. This is my birthday. Yeah. Right? They just executed a a moment of self-advocacy. They just executed that attunement of self. I don't enjoy hugs. That grocery store person was very friendly and they're like, let me give you a hug. And then you said, actually, no, thank you. But I appreciate the, you know, the joy and the, you know, the, the excitement. All right. Why could someone do that with a grocery clerk? Because guess what? When you say no, you don't lose the house. You don't lose yep. the kids. You don't lose the security. You just lose that moment of like what they thought they were going to get out of that, right? That's it. And I don't think it's a loss for them. It's actually a gain for them because they're gaining some skills around self-advocacy, right? So now we're going back to, it's almost flip-flopped. People are like, wouldn't you start doing that with the people that are closest to you? I'm like, not if you think they're going to abandon you. If you think that when you show up real to this relationship, that they are going to meet you with the, like this, is what I'm saying it can go either way. Well, you're, this is too much. I'm not going to adapt to it. I'm going to leave blah, 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 blah. Right. To be fair, that's you in a healthy relationship. It's usually not like a snap and you're that going, extreme. right. I right. abandoned you. Right. <laughs> right. Right. That's not what this is. All right. In a healthy relationship, if you are two individuals that have actually reached the conclusion that this is high priority, there cannot be an adaptation around it. All right. And these are actually, can I just validate? These things do occur. All right. Especially when it comes to, let's, let's go to the highest one. I am not attracted to men. Can't you just fake it though? Can't we just do it for the kids for the rest of like eight more years? Can't you just pretend that you like men and you can just be, you know, with a whip, but like, we'll just pretend. And you realize, oh my God, no, I can't. <laughs> like, I am not going to do that, right? These are high, high priorities. When it gets to the highest priority where you're like, I can't function in this dynamic without executing what I just draw the conclusion to, in a healthy relationship, and this is why I want to play this out, okay? Because in some cases, you will be able to navigate through some of these high prioritization mismatches. But in some cases, the ones that like don't really match, what you're really trying to understand is their self-actualization or their attunement. This is kind of a, tra it's like a tragic kind of love, but like, If I looked at CA and I said, CA, in order to be my friend, you need to move to New York. 
right? I don't know if anyone knows this. We're not in the same state. Some people don't realize that. <laughs> we are in two different states. CA is in Virginia. I'm in New York. Okay. And if I say you have to move, right? And you're like, I can't. High prioritization. I can't. And then I come to the conclusion that even though we can't be together in the same location, we can stay close and I can honor her through this like kind of painful love that is her being in her own autonomous alignment of where she wants to live. Because the last thing I want her to do is move to New York and pretend that she wants to live there for the sake of me. That's why I'm telling you it's a tragic kind of love. Because when we talk about marriages, like if my partner came to me and said, I'm not attracted to women and I only am attracted to men, okay? As much as this would be incredibly painful to go through this whole me reimagining my life and all of this stuff, the tragic kind of, the tragedy in the love that I have for him is I love him so much that I do not want him to pretend he is someone he is not. I love him so much that I do not want him to pretend he is someone he is not. All right. And so now we're going into, we're going into some deeper stuff, but like, I want you to think about it through this. When you start opening the doors of like, it's not too little, too much. This person's needs are higher. This person's is lower. This person gets to be prioritized. If we can hold it in a mutual space, that's where the rub CA is talking about comes in. You are now holding mutual, seemingly dissonant sometimes truths at the same time and trying to come to a conclusion together of whether or not that's tenable or sustainable in your, both of your individual autonomous relationship, like it, it, in the autonomous relationship, is that real? Is it authentic? Right? And if it, if the answer on either of those sides is no, that's a hard, that's a very hard conversation. It is. And there's, there's, and there's so many avenues to explore that, that we could just never get into every single. No. And we're going to wrap it up anyways, but in, yes, in this, this space is. of a podcast episode, but I think hopefully we've been able to illuminate some of the, the realities behind the, the accusations and the labels of too needy, too much, too dramatic, too closed off. When you start using those accusations and labels, it prevents this level of honest exploration within oneself and within the context of a relationship. So hopefully that's what we've been able to get across and communicate is getting into that space of radical self-honesty so that you can be convicted to radically self-advocate, even knowing that that might have and oftentimes does have implications. Now, here's the thing. Those implications that we're referring to, the fear of that is so often what stops people from beginning that self-exploration process in the first place. 
But what we were speaking to right here at the end is that hopefully this can maybe, it doesn't dispel the fear, but it maybe provides some like comfort and strength to brace the fear with, which is that even if your biggest fear comes true, which is that once these honesties come out, that means I can no longer continue a relationship as it is with this partner. Even if that's the biggest fear that comes out, again, we try to brace that with some strength and courage that helps you to see and understand that as difficult as that reality is, living a lie or asking your partner to live a lie forever is not a great reality either. So it's, is it uncomfortable to face the truth sometimes and experience the, the implications of that truth telling? That can be uncomfortable. But we also know that it's very uncomfortable to just mask and fake and lie for yourself or to force your partner to do that. So either way, there's going to be discomfort. But in this first level of discomfort, the one where there's honesty and integrity, that type of discomfort usually um, leads to a place of authenticity and peace within yourself and hopefully for that other person as well. So it's, I don't know, I'm not trying to like toxic positivity this thing and be like, oh, no, it's yeah. all sunshine and ra- rainbows. Just not, like, be it's honest. Pretty it's pretty hard. Not. It can be incredibly painful and it can also lead to a greater level of authenticity. And if that's what you're after, which most of our listeners on this particular podcast, that is what they're after, then... Hopefully the stuff we've talked about in this episode can help you get to that place a little bit better. Yes. Well, that's all we got. So thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, y'all, for tuning in. If anything we said resonated, please subscribe and leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. This absolutely helps us grow, and we really do value your voice on this podcast. So if you have anything you'd like to contribute, any tips, any topics, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at unlearned at recollectedself.com. You can find us on Instagram at the unlearned podcast or individual Instagrams at recollect itself and CAs is at embracing divergence. You can also find us over on TikTok under those handles. If you want to join our Patreon for $5 a month, you can be our coffee fiend club member. And that's going to give you access to our podcast within a podcast, which is called unhinged. This is basically where we let loose completely unedited we are literally just shooting the breeze having fun you can see our full personalities and it is a blast honestly it's pretty fun so if you want to join us you can find that at patreon.com unlearned and that's it the last thing i want to tell you is i want you to be brave enough to fight for the person you want to become and this is how we do the work